This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. As we head into the 2022 midterm elections and further on into the 2024 presidential election, one of the hottest topics in political strategy is where Latino voters will fit into the equation. Historically, Democrats have done better among Latinos than Republicans, but in 2020, former President Donald Trump improved his share among the group by 8 percentage points, a development that ought to signal to political observers that Latino voters are a complicated group and motivated by much more than concerns about immigration. In addition to a variety of different ethnic political concerns, Latino Americans are starting to manifest some of the other differences that have been previously observed among white Americans. Joe Biden won 69% of college-degree Latino voters, but his share dropped to 55% among those without a college degree. There also appears to be an emerging religious divide among Latinos, with those who adhere to no religion or to Roman Catholicism being more likely to support Democrats, and those who are Protestant much more likely to support Republicans. In a 2020 survey by the Public Religion Research Institute, 57% of the Hispanic Protestant bloc said that they approved of the job then-President Trump was doing, while just 27% of Catholics agreed. Among non-religious Latinos, his approval rating was even lower, 16%. But Hispanic Protestants, primarily evangelicals, are growing at a rapid rate. What does that mean for the future of American politics? Joining me to discuss this is Gerardo Marti, He's a professor of sociology at Davidson College, and he's also the president-elect of the Association for the Sociology of Religion. Thanks for being here, Gerard. Thanks. My pleasure. All right. The discussion that we're going to have today, we're going to focus it around an article that you wrote, and I will provide a a link in the show notes for everybody who wants to check it out. But you wrote a, a piece in the a journal of uh, Sociology of Religion, and your article was about some of the religious aspects of Latino Americans and whether or not Protestants in the various Latino communities have different political opinions. So let's maybe uh, walk through a little bit about some of the key points in your article. What's your overall contention? Well, thanks for having me. We know that the proportion of Protestants among Latinos has grown tremendously in recent years. It's one of the most dramatic shifts happening among Latinos in the United States. And so most people have been just trying to pay attention to what is that difference, to what extent are Protestants different than Catholics, to what proportion uh, are the Protestants just really Pentecostals, and what consequences is that having for the demographics of church life? because we also are seeing a rise in religious nuns. And of course, we're also seeing the fact that church membership and church attendance overall has declined. So is perhaps Latino Christianity one of the most vibrant aspects of Christianity in the United States? That's a question that I've been pursuing for quite a while. But it was since the Trump presidency that I began to pay a lot more attention to the politics of Latino Protestants and to begin to see what, to what extent do we see Latino Protestants as resonating with their white um, Christian, especially white evangelical brethren. And by being able to take a look at that, we immediately run into difficulties. 
So even though I and colleagues have been spending time in congregations, in communities across the United States to really get an on the ground look at what they are doing, to be able to get macro views uh, based on survey data or even polling data to actually measure what's going on, this becomes very difficult because we actually have too few that are measured and to be able to make a distinction between Latinos on the basis of their religious orientation. So the essay that I wrote was an attempt to focus more directly on does the growth of Latino Protestants in the United States have religious consequences for their vote? And what we see is, yes, first, we need to be able to look more carefully at the history of colonization and the border issues that have translated into what does it mean to be a Latino in the United States and what kinds of people are coming into the United States and therefore what do they adopt? And when we begin to see all of these things together, we find that Latinos overall are seeming to resonate with a kind of family politics that is characteristic of the conservative right. And that family politics, which really resonates with stereotypes about Latinos who care about family and are family oriented and family centered, seem to also dovetail with their being mostly against homosexuality, trans or gay rights kind of things. And they also tend to be uh, anti-abortion as a whole. So when you see a connection, then the growth in their churches in terms of Latino Protestants, especially Latino evangelicals and Pentecostals, and we see the resonances that they have with certain social attitudes, what we're increasingly seeing is that all of that seems to be aligning with support for Donald Trump. And this becomes a surprise because most people believe that Donald Trump's words and the kinds of things that he had advocated about the wall, about immigration, about the kinds of discriminatory things that he had said that created a lot of reactions, that still you have a significant proportions of Latinos who still resonate with the policies being proposed by Trump and the GOP. In 2016 and in 2020, what we saw is indeed an increase in Latino Protestants giving their vote over to Donald Trump and that this needs to be explained over and beyond the Latinos who are Cuban or Venezuelan, which in popular terms, people believe that their anti-communism automatically translates into a vote for the GOP, but actually it doesn't account for significant votes and support that's going from Latino populations that are not Cuban or Venezuelan in other states, in other places outside of like Florida. So when we look at those things more carefully, what we need to do is pay more attention at a distinction of religious orientation among Latinos and to be able to look specifically at what is the religious orientation and the networks that they're a part of feeding into in terms of the politics that they take on and ultimately the vote that they'll support. And so just real quick, let's maybe discuss like the difference that you saw in terms of the actual vote totals and some of the polling differences between Latino Catholics and, and Protestants. So when we look specifically, we have scarce information that we can draw on. But the little bit that we have is that even though we don't see entirely always majority Latino Protestants, the best information that I have most recently is showing that in 2020, the majority of Latino Protestants did indeed vote for Donald Trump. Maybe if it's just over 50%, maybe 55%, it still becomes a majority that is washed out when you only look at the Latino vote as a whole. Now, we do see that conservatism, generally speaking, among everyone, including Latinos, will predict that vote. 
so that if a Latino somehow resonates with conservatism, then you're going to get that vote. But it still doesn't explain where that conservatism comes from and what supports it. Is it just uh, those people who are able to have more more education in some way? We don't see that. Is it home ownership, the ability to have property and assets? Yes, there's some indication that that indeed has a positive inflection. But Protestantism is a powerful point of explanation for Latino support for Donald Trump. And that the more that they attend church, the more you see them immersed in a congregational community, the more you see their support aligned with a Trump vote. So what does that mean for the future? We're all still trying to figure out. But I think that it shows an aligning, if you will, between the Latino or the Hispanic Protestant vote and the initiatives that are being proposed as policy by the GOP. And that's measured by other factors like, generally speaking, Hispanic evangelicals, as measured by PRRI in particular, are the ones who are the most against open immigration policies. They are the ones who express the least amount of resistance to the confinement of children across the border or the separation of parents from their children. They're the ones who are who tend to most agree that immigrants are somehow hurting our country or the, the culture of the United States. They're changing the culture of the United States. And so the surprise there is that you have Hispanic evangelicals who are being the closest um, with aligning with their white evangelical brethren. So if we now see white evangelicals as a vanguard or the largest group that expresses the most intense support for the Trump presidency and different policies that are coming through, then we should now be paying attention also to those Hispanics or Latinos who also seem to be tracking with that and aligning with them, even if the proportion is smaller. In places where the vote is razor thin, those small margins are going to make a difference. And indeed, I think they have. Yeah. And there's a lot of complexity to the picture here. So in terms of the the particular religious denominations of Protestantism that we're talking about here, as you noted, the similarities between Hispanic Protestants and, and, and white evangelical Protestants. So what particular Protestant denominations are we talking about here that have grown among Latinos? This becomes a little bit harder to measure because we don't have the greatest data. But generally speaking, the greatest growth, the most vibrant area of American religious life in terms of Christianity today is non-denominational, independent evangelical churches. Um, these are churches that either are non-denominational or act non-denominational and take their cues from the more successful media-friendly, pop culture-friendly megachurch model that's there. And all this has roots and history. A colleague and I have written a lot about Robert Schuller, the Crystal Cathedral, the guy behind the Hour of Power for the model that he established in the mid 20th century and how that model then influenced people like uh, Rick Warren and uh, Bill Hybels and Willow Creek and even Joel Osteen in, in Houston. So these are the kinds of models that have been embedded uh, for a long time. But what they have said is that they are not political. They claim to be apolitical, largely, even though they support uh, very conservative policies and by and large support things like voter guides or have been able to promote people into political office who share these kinds of resonances. Now, when we take a look at the Hispanic or the Latino vote, the majority of Latino Protestants are evangelical, and about half of those are 
Pentecostal and half are, I call them Baptistic, but they're non-charismatic evangelicals. In terms of where they are coming from, it's very hard to tell. The Pentecostals have a much more fluid model. And because of historic discrimination among Pentecostal uh, denominations, you have some who are aligned with things like the AOG, the Assemblies of God, or maybe Foursquare. But but a lot of Pentecostal Latinos are self-anointed, self-appointed, independent congregations that are meeting in homes or in schools or empty buildings that may not necessarily have a sign, but are able to sustain themselves over those who are not necessarily Pentecostal, they may affiliate with places who are willing to give them money. And so that means that they may occupy a Sunday school classroom in a church, or they may meet at a different time of the day um, and are willing to rent or be donated that space in an established building. And those that are fully independent might actually uh, align with any number of different denominations who want to have some kind of outreach or touch with the Latino or Hispanic population, perhaps even if it's Spanish speaking or Spanish only. We are going to have the smallest proportion of those among the mainline. And that's because Latino leadership in mainline is still often uh, tied to the requirements of education. In order to be ordained as a Methodist or as a, uh, many of the Lutherans or Presbyterians, you have to be able to have credentials. Those credentials mean that you're going to have a path of being able to go through schooling and seminary. And the fact of the matter is that Latinos in America have have higher rates of dropout in high school. They have lower rates of attainment in terms of college, let alone being able to pursue formal schooling for ministry. So the path of ministry ends up being those who are immersed in a church, are successful and have done a great deal of ministry, and they are recruited from their church leadership or the denominational leadership to take on these roles and might be able to find their way into education. But it only translates to maybe 10, 15% at most mm-hmm. of Latino Protestants being from a mainline denomination, some of the bigger ticket you know, denominations that we might recognize in the United States. Yeah. And, and I think that does the issue you talk about with regard to credentialism, if you will. If you look at a lot of the emotional underlying appeal of a lot of Republican politicking, it also plays into that. You've got this educated globalist elite and they don't care about you. They're not open to you. And they look down on people who don't have a college degree. Republican politics has come up with a populist model, which is not economic based because their policies are for lower taxes on wealthy people and less regulations on business and opposing minimum wage and things like that. But at the same time, they've managed to reorient the focus of a lot of people to say that the real elites in America are actually college professors like yourself. Well, I think what's interesting is I take a look at things usually through a congregational lens, and that just has to do with both the interests, the past research that I've done, and the kinds of things that I typically pay attention to. But when you look at how is it that churches are able to sustain themselves, Latino Protestants are actually more highly engaged in their churches than Latino Catholics and Latino mainline. They tend to be people who go to church more often, go to church not just on Sunday. They're participating in other smaller group things. They tend to be more actively engaged in supporting their congregations. So that means that they're much more engaged in an active congregational life and all the things that come with it. Now, in order to survive as a church today, you have to find a sponsors, uh, an ability to put yourself in relationship to other people 
people who agree with you and can support you. And among Latino evangelicals, of course, that's going to be white evangelicals. Why? Because white evangelicals, by and large, have more money to share compared to their Latino brethren, as well as all of the materials. They have Sunday school materials, they have printing, they have music sources, they have facilities. So there are a lot of uh, things that are infrastructure to making church happen that accommodate Latino evangelicals more easily than other uh, frames of orientation. Because Mm -hmm. of that, I think that many Latino evangelicals, in the same way that many white evangelicals are the same, they participate in a religious life that is conservatively oriented in ways that they may not recognize is affecting their politics. It Mm -hmm. just becomes the presumed aspect of what the culture is. So again, if the great majority of Latino evangelicals in the United States are needing to find a way to sustain their faith, then they're going to align themselves with what seems to be the most obvious thing, and that's going to be white evangelicals. And that Mm -hmm. means that they are going to be drawn into circles of trust, relationship, as well as a, a sharing of sources that's going to introduce them and absorb them into their politics. So the generalized argument um, that I'm making here is that, of course, nobody lives in a vacuum and white evangelicalism, we are getting better understanding the way these things have been developing over the past century. But the increase in Latino migration, those people who are converting to evangelicalism, they are disaffiliating with Catholicism or they come to the United States already evangelical, that these people are finding themselves in relationship with white evangelicalism. And as they then pursue what it means to be an American, their best understanding of being an American is going to be absorbed into things like the Christian nationalist narratives that are being purported in a lot of our white evangelical churches. And even the congregation leaders themselves, the market incentive for them is easier to get started. If you want to be a pastor and you don't have any money, whether you're an immigrant or not, if you have a passion for it, it's a lot harder to get started, to show up at a Methodist congregation and say, hey, I know a lot about the Bible and I'd like to preach. They'll say, oh, that's nice. Maybe you can be a Sunday school teacher or something like that. And that's not what a lot of people want to hear. Whereas in the evangelical world, it's very entrepreneurial based. That's why also it does independently of race, move to a more business-focused political manifestation because the culture itself is sustained through entrepreneurship. And so it's the only framework that they really understand and have seen. And that's yeah. a big contrast to Catholicism or, or mainline Protestantism. Yeah, completely agree. Again, Robert Schuller is a great example for this kind of work because not only did Robert Schuller model this and purport this and establish a school of leadership based on spreading his notions of how these things work, his own Crystal Cathedral had a Spanish congregation with one of the most famous Latino evangelists in the world who headed it up. They grew and they were for a quite a while larger than the sort of mother congregation itself, but they were ever, never able to raise the same kind of funding. They were never able to have the same kind of revenue. And therefore, when the Crystal Cathedral eventually imploded in 2010, there was no way they could purchase uh, the building or take over the building in any way because the percentage that they had in revenue compared to what the costs were to keep these things up was just so huge. That congregation still continued to exist. It moved somewhere else. It rented other space, which again manifests the vitality of Latinidad. 
but you have a sense in which the Latinos do not feel like they can stay within particular denominations if financially they cannot toe the line on the expectations of a building or other things that are there. And instead, they will participate in networks that consist of conference calls or attending different things and really being able to cultivate different affinities and different relationships and therefore be able to get a hold of different kinds of materials and advice that doesn't depend on only denominational lines, right? It'll be anybody who's willing to connect with this thing, which really opens it up and allows them to feel like they are a vibrant part of the American Christian community. And that American Christian community is one that I think, again, to get to our point, I think together, is coming attendant with a set of political imperatives. And those political imperatives are always going to be there in some way because not only with Latinos and Latino immigrants, but also other non-white immigrants in the United States always bear the burden of showing themselves to be legitimately American. And so the research that's emerging now that is not just about Latinos, which is something that I and, and some other colleagues have done, but we also see now research happening among Asian populations, those that also came out of the 1965 shift in immigration policy um, that welcomed refugees and were willing to give them visas based on work and education as well as family reunification. That swell of Asian Americans, they came with the same issues. How do we fit into America? How do we take the Christianity uh, that we brought with us and accommodate it to an American system? And so the only or the most viable models that they had available to them, the ones that were most public and the ones that were most pressing, are ones that, again, are based largely in some form of Christian nationalism, yeah. which allows them to adopt a Christian nationalist stamp standpoint, which now it continues to develop to essentially Trump support. So it's very interesting because there seems to be an irony that most people would take on. Why would these people who you would think would not support this kind of person or these kinds of policies do that? It's because it fits into a much larger narrative that is being uh, portrayed at the same time. And I believe that it's largely for them, the only politics that they recognize. So for them, it's just the way to be American. It's not really, yeah. uh, it's not really something different than that. And it touches on, I think there has been a fair amount of research and discussion about the notion of whiteness as a concept. But this is, you know, obviously, we're talking about people who are obviously not white and, and would not be considered white. Uh, by any definition for the most part. But it, it basically shows that there's a subset here, which is Americanness or American identity. And it's something that I think to some degree people on the political left have not noticed that as much. So like, for instance, there was a, a Washington Post article that came out several months ago. They were trying to make the point to talk about multiracial whiteness. And people just laughed at the headline, even though it was in line with what I just was talking about. The way that they expressed it was not very accurate to the viewpoints of many people. To this point, there is new research that I was reading just the other day that talks about Latinos who vote for Trump are actually affiliating closer with being white. And so that sense of what whiteness means, the malleability of whiteness and who's willing to adopt whiteness, that ends up being a very real thing when we look at the Latino uh, vote. And so here again, we're talking about Latino Protestants who they're typically associated with. Well, it's having consequences in, in the boxes that they tick off when it mm -hmm. comes to identifying themselves by a racial group. 
So it is yeah. complicated. It's not readily straightforward. And it certainly complicates the ability to gather data and to discern what's going on with this data. But I think that there is an undeniable shift going on and that there's an undeniable affiliation that's going on. And it both has to do with whiteness and it has to do with conservative or Republican politics. And once we are willing to open the door to acknowledge that there is diversity among the Latino vote and to see where that diversity is being sourced from and therefore who is now mobilizing to galvanize that vote, then I think we start to get smarter about understanding the religious dynamics that are happening uh, among Latinos and the consequences that it has for our politics. Now, what about in terms of language differences with regard to Latino Protestants versus non-Protestants? This is a great point. And what, what we find is that there is a great deal of push among Latinos to really be able to speak English and to speak English well. And so we find a surprising, I don't have the numbers in, the, in front of me, but there's a surprising number of Latinos or Hispanics who are speaking English at home and who are quite comfortable and confident with the language. And so when we think about Spanish or the need to appeal to Spanish, it's a smaller proportion, I think, than we typically imagine. The other complication is to recognize that when we get to language issues in Spanish, we have to also remember that there are dialect differences so that the way in which things are expressed by a Mexican-American, Chicano, or Puerto Rican, or Cuban, or any number of other Latino things, you find that there are little nuances. So it is entirely possible that a person may believe that they are doing the work to mobilize people in Spanish, but they may only be speaking to Tejanos at the Mexican border because that form of Spanish is not one that's resonating with all Latinos equally. It can be as simple just as a word. That means very different things to different people. So the attempt to really be able to be smart about these things, if our goal is to try to achieve some form of affective resonance, you can't just decide that you speak Spanish and automatically you're going to be speaking to all of these people. You have to get a lot smarter about those things. And in some ways, it may be safer, quote unquote, um, maybe that's not the right word, but the idea of using someone who is themselves Latino, but still speaking in, in English to be able to address these issues and have enough exposure to the different circumstances that people have. I mean, you also have to recognize that for a lot of people, what I'm calling family value politics, the idea that you work, men work, women are at home, you're raising your children, like that normative sense of what a traditional family looks like, that is a strong level of conservatism and essentially libertarianism that's also influencing these Latino voters. And they don't even realize that it's falling into these narratives, but those narratives are one that tend to convey um, a more conservative standpoint. So there's a tougher road to hoe if you decide to focus on things like LGBT plus kinds of issues. There's a certain kind of sophistication and understanding that needs to be brought to being able to talk about what it means to be queer in America and the political consequences of that, because those issues for most Latinos are very hot in their own homes. Also, if we're only focusing on things like Black Lives Matter, you have to recognize that we have a long history of intentional antagonism that's been built between so many Latinos and so much of the African-American community. Of course, I'm not factoring in this idea of the Afro-Latino people who come either from Cuba or, Puerto Rico or other Dominican Republic. That, that's a whole other kinds of thing. But our Black-oriented, American-centered civil rights discourse doesn't automatically speak to 
the issues of the life circumstances or the resonances that are true for a lot of Latinos born in America or Latinos who immigrated to America. And some of them came built in with prejudices that are continuing to be fed because they're trying to make it. And if they adopt the standpoint of, I work hard, I, I, I hope to make it, I'm going to be a success someday. And then they look at African-Americans and they say, we don't understand why you don't work hard too. They devolve into a very nasty form of racism because they can only attribute it to all these racist notions that are readily available to them, that there's something wrong with the African-Americans in the United States and they mm -hmm. can't make it the way I know I will be able to make it. The idea of the faith in the American dream, belief exactly. in the American dream is yep. so core to the Latino identity, probably more than almost anything else from a political standpoint. But I see that so rarely discussed by political consultants. Now, Republicans actually talk about it to some degree. I don't see Democratic consultants or pundits talk about it very much. Hmm. Do, you, do you agree with that? Uh, I, as far as I know, I just think that there is a sense in which there is a civil rights tradition that is certainly distinctive to particularly the Mexican-American experience. Certainly, we know that Puerto Ricans have a sort of civil rights uh, discourse and connection to understanding their own issues in relation to the United States. Those things are certainly there, but it is obscured by a lot of other talk. And most Latinos do not have access to the learnings from those things, those generational things that happened in the 60s and 70s, for the most part, the most famous ones. And most Latinos do not have access to the Black radical tradition. They've never heard of someone like Frederick Douglass. They only have a passing acquaintance with something, a Fannie Lou Hamer or even a Dr. King. So those things just don't really connect with them. The 1965 immigration change, if we contextualize it, we have immigrants from Latin America coming to the United States, believing that they can achieve success at the same time that the civil rights movements are occurring. And so what you have in some ways, and this is speculation on my part, but I believe that you have Latino immigrants who come with such high ideals and aspirations and promises. Certainly that was true of the Cuban Americans that were brought with the executive order from Kennedy in 1963. They were brought with idealism, with promises, and in the case of Cubans, concrete financial resources. And so they had no life circumstances to resonate with the continued oppressions and the fight that Black Americans were having as the civil rights movement was taking off. All the other developments that happened, movements in Mississippi and Alabama and the South, that's not where Latinos were going. So Latinos who are moving into the Southwest or moving up to New York or Chicago, they are so distant to what they see as a Southern Black racist problem that they just do not seem to understand the fundamental issues of racism that occur in the United States and the way our politics have been shaped by that. So instead, by tying into white Christian nationalism, a white Christian libertarianism, and a promise of the American dream, as you mentioned, then that's what really has colored so much of their politics and moves them, I think, mm -hmm. in a much more conservative direction overall. And even the slogan, Black Lives Matter, it is not implicitly obvious what it means. Right. And so if you're an English second language speaker or you're not well-educated, it actually can be difficult to understand the underlying implications there that they do not exclude people of whatever race you might happen to be. And it is an issue that I've seen when you look at polling. The support for Black Lives Matter among Latinos has declined 
over mm. time. But to, to go back to something you, you mentioned briefly earlier about the idea of white evangelical affiliated churches or denominations doing missionizing in the Spanish-speaking world. One of the key figures who actually passed away last year, Luis Palau, was very big in that regard. But can you talk a little bit about how some of these denominations have linked up with Latino ministers and preachers to spread their version of Christianity inside mm -hmm. Latin mm -hmm. America? Well, the existence of Protestantism among Latinos is, has a surprisingly long history. It goes back to the early 19th century because of the deliberate attempt of white Americans to missionize in the un unincorporated areas of the United States. So it was a civilizing mission in much the same way as we see them doing with Native Americans. So it was westernizing them, and we use this term loosely, the idea of clothing them, bathing them, teaching them how to speak and act correctly, establishing schools. All of those things occurred among these sort of Mexican, uh, American, or Tejano people in the Southwest region, establishing churches and attempting then to move them towards indigenous leadership quickly. So we have long-term Latino Methodists. We certainly have other groups. And then in terms of California in particular, we see that there was a multiracial movement associated with the Zusa revival. You do have some leadership happening among Pentecostal groups. It's just unfortunate that much of uh, Pentecostalism has been shown to also participate in the racism that we would uh, just expect in the United States. And that racism actually deliberately hindered the leadership of people of color in some of the established denominations. So while Pentecostalism itself may have spread, it tend to uh, be more along the lines of individual congregations who struggled for resources more so than sponsored by a denomination. It just took a long time for that to take place. Then in terms of these other offices of large denominations, all of them usually establish some group that says, we need to reach out to this group, we need to reach out to this group. Uh, but it is a very small number of people overall. The dollars tend to be small, and they also don't tend to be dedicated to particular groups. So let's say you have an office that deals with like outreach in general. That person is going to be responsible perhaps for all Latino ministries, but also all black ministries, also maybe women's ministries. So that in actually hurts in terms of being able to pay attention to their particular issues, which leads a lot of leaders of color. And if we focus on Latino, let's say Latino leaders of color in these denominations to feel that they do not have as much authority, as much discretion, and certainly not as much financial support in relation to the larger denomination. And, and so they're constantly having to play catch up to both justify their ministries, to justify what they're doing, their plans or their initiatives, but also constantly having to ask for more funding to be able to do exactly those things. And the ability to be self-supporting is just simply much harder if it's going to be a homogeneous Latino population for the most part. So the largest Latino churches, there aren't very many of them, but we would consider a church that's 500 or over to be quite large when we're talking about Latino-only churches in the United States. The great majority of them would be less than 100, you know, mm -hmm. maybe 50 even, maybe 12. That's the way that looks. And so that's really the part of the difficulty in understanding 
what is the relationship that's going on? Some are sponsored relationships, but a number of them have tried to go on their own. And to be able to go on their own is inevitably going to be mean that they're probably going to be smaller. And you shouldn't be surprised if you see three, four, five different Latino congregations really all within a mile or two of each other, because mm -hmm. it will be about the concentration of Latino populations in different neighborhoods that may happen across the United States. Yeah. And then the role of broadcast and internet media is actually very important with regard to Latino Protestantism. And, and again, to Luis Palau, he had three radio shows, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. before he died. And one was in English and two were in Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, because for people who have a different work schedule outside of regular business hours or they have to drive a lot. That's correct. Or have to work on Sundays. The traditional cookie cutter mainline or, or Catholic ministries are not well suited to people who live that kind of a lifestyle. And whereas if you're driving 40 miles for your job and you can turn on the radio and you can do your church in the car. And so that's, I think, also probably been influential as well for the growth. I, I, I agree. I'd also add that some of the larger of the evangelical churches have been able to dub their services in Spanish. So even though the original message may not have been given in Spanish, they might hire a translator to have the message dubbed, which then allows a further outreach for the largest of the evangelical churches and creates that further alignment. And there's the accessibility of it and also the quality of it. The production quality is going to be pretty good. So from that standpoint, that also extends a reach. But these are not Latino leaders who are being placed on social media or through internet or other ways. It's actually white leaders, white male evangelical leaders, who are being able to find ways to accommodate a Spanish-speaking audience. That's true. And it's less effective compared to when it's bottom up. And again, as, as we were saying, that it's just so much easier to be a, an entrepreneurial minister in, in the unaffiliated evangelical world. Now, one of the other things that you talk about in your article is the idea of acceptance of inequality as a religious tenet. Why don't you just summarize that for the audience and, and then maybe talk about what you mean by it. I was very influenced in some of the readings that I had, particularly Enrique Dussel and some other of these writers who come from Latin America. I think that there's a lot to say about people who enter into a system that's already established, meaning that you enter into a wage labor system in which in order to make it, the goal is to get a job and to do your job well. So the acceptance that you are inevitably going to work for someone else really orients an entire way of life that says, my goal is to get a good paying job. Your hope is that it's a stable job, but it's essentially a good paying job that's going to be based on uh, wage labor. Now, the reason why that's consequential is because I think that we all know, anybody who's studied wealth in America knows that the way in which you attain wealth and get better stability in terms of wealth is to find ways to be able to get assets, assets that will grow and build aside from whatever you might earn in pay. For the great majority of Americans, that's home ownership. And then attended to that would be perhaps some kind of retirement account or other kinds of investments as you can. But we know that home ownership, let alone any other kind of investment wealth, is just so low. 
and the ability to understand financial systems, let alone participate in financial systems, the bar is very high. There is an implicit understanding that many Latinos, most Latinos have, that they are going to participate in a system of inequality, that they are people who are going to have to work for a living and that they hope to be able to have enough stability over time to be able to uh, maintain their families and perhaps maybe as a dream, retire. But that means that they are consumers, they are not investors. It also means that they are producers but they're not necessarily owners. And so the orientation is perhaps there's an exceptional moment when they've heard of someone or they ha may have a distant friend of some sort who was able to make it, who has a miracle story to tell, who was able to somehow get the right combination of things to be able to get there. But I think that it's always spoken of as an exception, as something that's out there, and perhaps even someone who could potentially be a patron of some sort who could help them in some way. But most of them accept the system that we have in place, which means that they accept the system of inequality that is there and just try to manage and do the best they can within that. Does that differ, though, among Catholic or unaffiliated? Yes, I get exactly what you're saying. It isn't necessarily different, but it is. it becomes a more God-ordained thing. So it, it's built into the virtue of what it means to be a good Christian. A good Christian is a good worker, and a good worker is one that participates in the system. It doesn't question the system. The biggest difference that we have there is uh, the, the Catholic tradition has a very strong social justice dimension. Dorothy Day, others down in Latin America, we have people who have recognized in a theological way that there are systems of oppression and, and that there is economic difference and therefore a need for economic justice, and that these come out of historical developments of economic systems. In contrast, in the United States, the winning out of libertarians, which happened about the 1950s, stemming from things in the early, in the 30s, people that are fed by things like Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman, those kinds of libertarian things, they actually believed that Christianity was going to be a way of helping to domesticate and properly orient immigrants to the system, to workers to the system, but particularly immigrants. And they worked very aggressively in Latin America to establish these things and to align themselves with a Christianity that was friendly to capitalism. So the capitalist friendly orientation that became a religious orientation is something that we know was established in American Christianity and accentuated greatly in the 1950s when we put in God we trust on our money and put in God we trust in the halls of Congress. Those things were not always there. That surge of trying to marry libertarian impulses as an appropriate Christian and devotional response happened at the same time as the surge in Latin American immigration came. The same libertarian initiatives that were being fought over in Latin America are in turn, ironically, being adopted in coming to the United States on the hope that in the United States, this dream will actually work. It, it can actually happen. So I think that there's a very interesting connection between immigration processes, religious developments, and the general political economic talk. And Ronald Reagan was a great exemplar for bringing all of these things together because he appeared to be pro-immigration, and there's a lot bigger history to that. He appeared to also be pro-Christianity, which ended up being a conservative Christianity. And he also was pro-libertarian policies, liberating 
credit globally and being able to reduce taxes. And he was a glamorous and somebody who was known outside the United States. That's correct. That's correct. But we don't really know that Reagan is a build off of Goldwater, which had already rejected the civil rights platform a long time ago. Reagan Mm -hmm. was never really sympathetic to uh, black issues. We know that out of his politics. And we know that his Christianity was very much dovetailed into a particular political initiatives. And in terms of the economic solutions that were being proposed, we know that this had to do with the winning out of libertarianism because of particular circumstances of inflation and the way that they chose to fight inflation in the 1970s, which utterly discredited the Great Society program that Lyndon Johnson has established in the 60s. There's a lot of really interesting things that happened in the political development of the United States, especially political conservatism, and being able to recognize that the surge of Latinos who come to the United States and the surge of Protestantism that was attended to that among American Latinos that also dovetailed at that moment, we have the makings of what we are seeing as manifestations today, both for white evangelicals in terms of Trump support, but now we're seeing it in this other intriguing development which is the increase in the proportion of Latino Protestants and their alliance, their their alignment with white evangelical politics. Yeah, exactly. And in a lot of ways, this is basically just a, a repetition of what happened with white mainline Protestants. The evangelical theology just ate away at their membership and they converted over a lot of people over to their particular brands of Christianity and the mainline number has declined, and, and now we're seeing with Latinos, the, the the Catholic Church is the church that's being taken away from by a more entrepreneurial, evangelical, conservative tradition. And the other thing also is that, just besides the institutional standpoint, is that from a, a doctrinal standpoint, the missionizing that the Southern white evangelicals were doing, it was heavily co-opted by this idea of Christian nationalism through the work of, of people like R.J. Rushduni, and more recently, the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, basically you know, creating a full-scale theological framework for libertarian economics. And explicitly, it is libertarian. It's not conservative. And it's minimal government. And, and so in a lot of ways, you've you got all these forces in different directions that are all prodding Latino Protestants over to the right. And so it should be no surprise that this is happening. And yet, I don't feel that this dynamic is being noticed very much in the press or even in academia. And that's part of why you wrote your essay. Yes. And uh, the other thing that we're implying this prosperity theology or word of faith theology that's building into this as well. So to the extent that you see Latinos participating in Pentecostalism, many of them also are participating in a particular theological system, which again, does not question the economic system that we have. It just says, you need to be the right kind of person in order to succeed. And therefore Mm -hmm. God will bless you if you do the right kinds of things. Yeah. Success is not just a fluke or somebody succeeding by luck. It is a literal God creation. God did this and he can do it for this person here and he can do it for you as well. That's right. That's right. That's right. If you just live by, live right and pray. That's right. That's right. That's right.
But I'm sorry, this phenomenon still, though, I don't feel like has been studied. So like in a lot of the polling that's been done, you have the issue that having a, a sufficient sample size of Latinos of any ethnicity is difficult and it's expensive in and of itself. And then being able to differentiate between the different subgroups, you have to spend even more money in order to have an adequate framework to understand how the different populations are are differing from each other. And then, then of course, you got the language barriers in many cases that a lot of pollsters, you have to pay for people who can speak Spanish in, in addition to English. Yes. Um, and so yeah. Yeah. these are these are all things that, that have probably led to a lack of understanding of it. But also, would you say that there's just a lack of familiarity with religio-political concepts within people who do political science or journalism? For the most part, I think we're all trying to get smarter. And it's interesting that the last four or five years has really pressed us to get smarter about certain kinds of things. Like today, we wouldn't just say Christian as a whole. I think that we are now more attuned to certain differences. I was very impressed when PRRI deliberately decided to ask questions about QAnon, QAnon beliefs, which may be fringe and may not be the majority, but there's enough people that we should be asking. And can we ask those questions and be able to get good information? PRI is among the few who are willing to do that kind of work. When it comes to Latinos, I think that it is well past time to be able to do something that is focused on the Latino population of the United States and that we make sure that we not just focus only on political questions and attitudes, but also make sure and ask some religious-oriented ones. Because religion appears to be the driver, just remembering that religion is fueled by not only the notion of a sacred identity, something that you're connected to in relation to God, but also a sacred community, right? A group of people who are surrounding you and um, shaping you and maybe even disciplining you to make sure that you say and do the right kinds of things. So if you have a poll that has maybe a generous, maybe 2000 is a pretty generous number by some standards, but if only 10% of that are Latinos, you just don't have enough to be able to authoritatively say, here's what's going on among the Latino population. We have to accept the heterogeneity of Latinos in America. We need to also accept the heterogeneity, not just of their um, ancestral or national backgrounds, but also the diversity of the religious orientations that they have. And so from there, then I think we might actually be better equipped to understand where things are and over time be able to see how those changes are happening over time. Because all of these phenomena are fairly new. And I really understand why somebody may not have paid attention to this in the right way. It's because really the surge of Protestantism is really a very recent phenomenon, but it is having already very important consequences. So in that sense, I do think it's past time for us to be able to pay attention to exactly these kinds of things and to solicit the right amount of information so that we can be more confident about what we think is going on. Yeah. And the reality is that with religious disaffiliation among white Americans and the drift of white evangelicals into mainline Protestantism, these conservative evangelical congregations have by necessity, if they wish to continue to exist at or above the level that they're currently bringing in revenue, they have to do Latino outreach. Yeah, agree, which is why I think that there are some churches um, in terms of like white churches and white evangelical churches that have unapologetically moved to a more conservative agenda because they know whether they know it from research or not, they know 
that conservative political people are the most religious. They are the ones who have the greater propensity to be in a church, to participate in ministries, to financially support it. And, and being apolitical or to have to feign that you have no politics is an attempt to try to keep everybody together. But what ends up happening is you are offending those who are most politically active because they expect you to toe the line in particular ways. And outreach to people who are more open on a number of different things, being welcoming and affirming of gay, lesbian, trans, or to be able to be more explicit about dealing with issues of racial justice in the world or other things like that is a very difficult thing to do. It's difficult because, again, for the most part, those who are most resonant with those themes have already walked away from religion a long time ago. So those people are not likely to participate in your church just because you have political attitudes or social attitudes that resonate with mm -hmm. what, what they do. It's really about trying to foster something among those Christians who have come to question so much of what they grew up with or so much of what's around them in their families or in their communities. Mm -hmm. So there is, it's very hard to tell, but we certainly have more Christians who have been walking away from conservatism, who are unwilling to accept the marriage of Christianity with a form of Christian nationalism or a particular interpretation of Christianity patriotism. And there are more Christians who are resonating with, we need to be more accepting and open to those who have different sexuality approaches to their sexuality understandings or living out their sexuality in different ways. And of course, we need to be attuned to the racialized oppressions that are continuing today, because to put a blind eye to that certainly does not take it away. It's persistent, but it is not yet fully the majority. And certainly among evangelicals, it is far from the majority. So this in and of itself becomes for pastoral leadership, who, again, is my often my focus. It, it becomes a real difficult endeavor of how do I lead a congregation in which some people are begging me to do more and are really resonating with these kinds of things and a strong proportion of people who are actively against it and are organizing against it and really want to get rid of me as a pastor in this place. If I um, talk about it, yeah. That's right. So the pastoral um, ministry is really challenged in our political settings, which, again, either brings people who just resonate with sentiments and go with it, and those who are saying, I'm willing to address it, but I may not survive here. It survive even in my own mental health, even in terms yeah. of how I understand myself and my family. Yeah, and I would say that one of the... I, one of the answers, one of the biggest answer probably is to look to what, let's say, Episcopalians or the Jewish communities have done, which is to open up church or synagogue to say, we are not going to demand that you believe X about certain theological concepts. Within a lot of synagogues in America, there are, are people who will go to synagogue and they're atheists and the synagogue accepts that. Uh, and says, we're not going to make you sign a loyalty pledge or a doctrinal creed or anything like that. And, and the Episcopal Church to some degree has done that as well. I would think that faith leaders who do have these more progressive 
perspectives, they're going to have to do something like that. It, it may be true, but you happen to hit on things that are a very small proportion of American religion. So you may be right, or that may be have some validity, but I will say that those and, and uh, Unitarians would be another, for example, just a tiny proportion of American religious life. The Alliance of Baptists, uh, you would think that they're conservative, but actually they're definitely amongst the most progressive churches in America, very white in terms of their overall demographic currently, but they are not by far the largest of the Baptist denominations in the United States. And their willingness, many of these churches' willingness to take on exactly the kind of orientation that you suggest is not something that's necessarily winning people over. So the great successes currently in American religious life are definitely among the conservatives, definitely non-denominational who are not beholden to a particular denominational body and almost entirely evangelical. So those are the groups that are quote unquote winning at the moment. But what that means is too often Christianity is affiliated with conservatism and we are losing any cognizance that there even was an alternative Christianity that was more progressive in nature or that it exists today. And so there is a viable American Christian tradition that resisted slavery, right? Who actually had a, a concern for those who are the poorest and oppressed, and who even today are continuing to address some of the hardest issues. But they are, they've never been in the majority. And it's almost uh, amazing the way they continue to innovate and really attempt to exercise their ministries. I have a great deal of respect for those who are attempting to live uh, a deep Christian faith, but it is one that often runs against the dominant a form of American Christianity. So we would do a lot for our democratic system to recognize that there are indeed other Christians, the Christians who have a long history, as long a history, maybe longer history, but have been people who did not fall into the kinds of ugliness or the weird kinds of patriotism and partisanship that we have today, the willingness to accept violence um, as a form of being able to assert the policies and the particularities that they think are most important. There is indeed a different Christianity out there. And so in part, it might be helpful for people to realize that it's not like Christianity or nothing, that there are actually other forms of Christianity, as well as, of course, Islam, Jewish. There are other religious orientations, of course, but that there are other religious orientations that allow you uh, to have a vibrant uh, spiritual life, but one that can participate in a pluralist democracy and one that can pursue the ambitions uh, of what America can be. Yeah, and it's actually a more long-standing tradition, as a matter of fact. These evangelical fundamentalism that we're talking about this fundamentalism, it's a mid-20th century creation. Nobody believed or had, had even heard of the rapture <laughs> at the beginning of the 20th century. It was just not a concept. Nobody believed it. And the notion that the Bible was 100% literally true in every word, that was not a common belief. It was certainly not a majority belief. Anyway, just to uh, wrap up here. So you were trying to spark some research by writing your article. Has anybody told you about projects that you had inspired them to begin? The article just came out really just a few weeks ago. So it's still in, in brewing, but there are certainly many who are already doing research or acquainted with the Latino community in the United States in all different ways. 
And uh, all of them have affirmed that the things that I'm writing about are indeed true. They see evidence of it based on the exposure that they have. And that in and of itself is very gratifying. I also myself have been digging into what is the best data that might be available today to suss out these things. And so far, based on very sophisticated statistics, I'm able to bear out exactly these dynamics that Latino Protestantism is increasingly aligning with support for Trump and the things that we associated uh, with Trump and the GOP. We also see that church membership only amplifies these sentiments. So we see those dynamics already in uh, the further research that I'm doing. And I am confident that as others out there see the capacity of being able to measure these things, that it will become more of something that will be added to an analysis or perhaps a focus of analysis. It's really just about getting better data. And every time I've done something like this, I've seen things like this exactly happen. So American Blind Spot is a book that was written in order to show a trend and a sort of cultural system that was beginning to come about, trying to align political attitudes with economic attitudes, with religious attitudes. And sure enough, within a year of that book coming out, which was in 2020, by 2020, when there were already analyses that were affirming this based on highly rigorous data and the most recent data we have available. So I am confident that what may seem like an innovative thought to some people today will be common sense thought very soon. Okay, I certainly hope so. And I look forward to seeing some of that additional research and getting to know some of those researchers as well. All right, so thanks for being here. Gerardo Marti is on Twitter. You'll have to explain your Twitter username because it's a philosophy <laughs> joke. Uh, Praxis so habitus comes from Bourdieu. And so praxis and habitus are two forms of relating to social life. And uh, if you want to understand that even more, you read a little bit more of the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, who's quite famous and who I was thinking about when I created my Twitter handle originally years ago now. All right. So it's uh, P-R-A-X-I-S for those listening. P-R-A-X-I-S-H-A-B-I-T-U-S. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. All right. So uh, that's the program for today. Thank you for watching or listening. And I just wanted to remind everybody that Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. For those who don't know about it yet, Flux is a new organization focused on in-depth podcasts and articles that look at larger religious and political and media trends and how they all interrelate. You can go to flux.community to check us out and get on our mailing list. And then if you want to get the Theory of Change archives with transcripts and all that good stuff, just go to theoryofchange.show and you can go directly to the episode archive. And if you liked what you have listened to or watched today, uh, please go to patreon.com slash discoverflux and help us out. We don't have any billionaire backers do, backing what we're doing here. There's no corporate welfare here and no George Soros or Koch Brothers money. We need your help to keep producing independent programs. So again, that's patreon.com slash Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, 
please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself, so you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.